championship trophy commences at AT&T Stadium tonight. Motioning on the right side. Snap to Jones out of the shotgun. Hands it Elliott straight ahead, and he's found a hole. Elliott on the move to the 20, to the 15, to the 10, 5. Touchdown, Ezekiel Elliott of Ohio State. Mariota ready for the play, wants the ball. Back to throw right away. Looks, 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 throws deep over the middle. Wide open, Marshall, catch made. Speed, can he get there? 10, 5, touchdown, Byron Marshall. Marshall motions into the backfield. Handoff, Elliott on a left angle, runs into the 10. Wide to the 5 and to the goal line and into the end zone. Touchdown, Ezekiel Elliott. Elliott dots the eye of this national championship win. State national champions for the eighth time as they defeat Oregon 42 to 20. What a historical event that was. Anybody watch it? Anybody not watch it? Okay, yeah, there's a few of you weirdos out there. That's okay. I just, uh, before we talk about the football game, in solidarity with my brother Brian, I just want to let the high school students know that I will be there too. Joe, I'm watching you as well. Okay, all you students, I want to see you out there tonight and next Sunday night. We're going to have an incredible time for a historical event at Mission View where we beat up on you. But uh, where were you? I'll take this off now so you don't have to focus on that right now. Where were you on Monday night? Now, some of you were kind of like my wife who decided to go to bed after halftime and decided to sleep when victory was not within our grasp quite yet. There are some of you that didn't even watch the football game, but then there are some of you that are the die-hard enthusiasts who stayed up and watched the entire event, every glorious minute. You saw the celebration at the end, and by the way, I am a die-hard enthusiast, at least at playoff time. Uh, some of you saw what happened and what an incredible thing it was to see them win this championship the first time there was a playoff system like this now as incredible as this event was i want you to know that this is going to fade in the memory of a lot of people no there will be some sports nuts that will just hold on to this victory for as long as they can 20 years from now i can see brian on a park bench talking smack with some oregon fan or some other michigan fan and just reminiscing about how great ohio state was and some of you will be right there but i want you to know after a hundred years from now after a hundred years, this won't even be, there won't even be a shout out in the history books about this event. It was glorious, it was temporarily historical, but in all reality, it won't stand the test of time. Today, I do wanna talk about something that will and has stood the test of time. What if I was to tell you today that there was a historical event that happened that all of history really hinges upon this. This event was the fold in history and everything beforehand looked forward to this one monumental true historic event and then everything after this event points back to it. Today, that is the privilege that we have to cover such an event such as that. 
I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark 15. The event was the cross of Jesus Christ and him suffering on the cross. You'll notice that every song that we sang really talked about what God has done for us. I hope that you've prepared your heart by singing the word of God, and now we get to look at the word of God and see what the word of God has to say. I want to start off in Mark 15, and I want us to see the decision that was made by men. Take a look at Mark 15, verse 1. It says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Notice there's the whole bunch of the religious leaders that are all gathered together. And notice what they decide. They decide, and so it says here, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. I want you to see what's taking place. Back in chapter 14, we see the arrest of Jesus. In the, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. The soldiers come and they arrest him. There is a trial by the Jewish leaders, his betrayal by his own disciples. But these Jewish leaders now have come to a, a conclusion that they now need to pass him on to the Romans for the Romans to do their dirty work. Now, the Romans want to keep peace, specifically Pilate. He knows his job is on the line, and he doesn't want a ruckus there in Jerusalem. So the, the, the religious people, the Jewish people, they knew, the religious leaders knew that they could get Rome to do what they wanted. And so they have made a decision, a concrete decision. He must die. But let me ask you, was it really their decision? Was it really something that they decided upon? Yes and no. Yes, they came to that conclusion, but here's the no. It was God who had it planned out. God had made a decision. The Godhead had made a decision a long time previous to this that the crucifixion would take place for the sake of mankind. And before, and, and, and just as proof of that, I want to read something from Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. This is after the resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the day of Pentecost. And notice what Peter says. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited, uh, accredited by God to you, the miracles and the wonders and the signs that God did through him, our common knowledge. This Jesus, here it is, following the deliberate and well thought out plan of God was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you and you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes and raised them up. Death was no match for him. What I want you to see is this deliberate, well-thought-out plan of God. Before we actually look at the event of the cross in Mark 15, I want to bring in a, just a few passages to help you understand how well-thought-out this event actually was. One verse that I want to bring up is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Take a look at it. It'll be on the screen. It says this, the Apostle Paul is saying, take note of the words he uses. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Okay, talking about the salvation we have been granted was given to us in Christ Jesus. But notice when. Before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of the Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now let that sink in. Let it sink in that the grace of God was planned out before the beginning of time. God had a plan of redemption, a rescue plan determined before the world was actually set on its axis. Think about that. Now this helps us in, in thinking through that. It come, we come to a few. Uh, we can make a few observations. Number one, man once he was created with the will, God knew he would rebel. God knew it. He knew that when he created man with the will, that that's what he would do. Second, God, out of his deep love for his creation, would make a way for sinful man to experience grace and restoration. And that would be fully realized when Jesus Christ, through the cross, would defeat death and give man the opportunity for eternal life. Now, here's my question. Why would God do this? Why would God, knowing that man is going to rebel, why would he even create us? Why would he even set the world on its axis? Well, God tell, we're told in God's word his motive. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. Listen to these words. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That blows my mind. He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You could put your name in there. He chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and to be blameless. And why did he do it? In love. He predestined us to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. From this passage, we learn God's motive is twofold. One, it is his love, and two, it is his pleasure. He loves us so much because he created us in his image. He loves every single person here. But it is his pleasure to provide redemption for you so that you can be to his praise and his glory. That's why we want eventually every seat filled here because we want to see other people that are lost come to understand who Jesus Christ is so they too can praise him with all of their heart. See, there's all kinds of evidence. That's the evidence before the world even existed. But there's evidence all through the Old Testament. We're not going to take the time now to see this plan. But I will tell you, on February 15th, we're starting a seven-week series leading up to Easter that will be called God's Story. And when we look at God's story, we're going to look at God's plan of redemption throughout the Old Testament, and we're going to look at that in detail. But I do want to bring up one evidence before we get to our passage, and that is in Psalm 22. You see, God showed in advance, a thousand years in advance, when he had David write this psalm, what was going to happen. Listen to an excerpt of Psalm 22, verses 14 to 16. And keep in mind, this is about Jesus, the Messiah, on the cross. My heart is turned to wax. 
It has melted, it's melts away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among me, among them, and cast lots for my clothes, my clothing. This was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. It was done well in advance to the Romans and the Romans inventing crucifixion. This shows us the clear picture that God had a plan, well-planned out event that he had in his heart for you and for, for me. Now let's look at the event itself, the hinge point in history. I'm going to read verses 2 through 39, and I want you to follow along as I read these verses. Keep in mind that now the Jews have turned Jesus over to the Romans. And Pilate, verse 2, asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast... He used to release for them one of the prisoners for whom they asked. And among the, the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And, the, and Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Release for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of, Je King Je King of the Jews! And they striked him on the head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, 
You who destroy, would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he, he saves others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling out Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who faced him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. At this point in the passage, what I'd like to do, we can't cover the entire passage, but I want to focus in on this actual hinge point, the point on Jesus being on the cross. We've seen from what we've read that the Romans did what they were good at doing, that they mocked him, they crucified him, they pretended, they made it a sport for them to enjoy their job. They were professionals in terms of torture and crucifying their victims. For them, this was just another pitiful soul. Now, I would imagine fellow Romans actually admired the Roman soldiers. I would think that they, think of them, they thought of them as we think of our own soldiers, just serving God and country, doing what they should be doing. But what they did in a mind-numbing ignorance, please know that God allowed to happen. God the Father allowed it to happen, but why? Why would a father allow his own son to, be, to go through such incredible agony? Why would a father allow that to happen? I want to draw three observations and focus in on verses 33 through 39. And I want to give you three observations. Please note that the crucifixion took place at 9 o'clock in the morning, the third hour. That would have been 9 o'clock Jewish time. And then Mark focuses in, in verse 33, on the hours of noon until 3 in the afternoon. Obviously, it was daylight hour at that time, but our passage says, and darkness fell over the whole land. Here's the first observation I want to make. The first observation is that God's wrath was very obvious. God's wrath was very much known at this time. You say, Steve, why do you say God's wrath is known? Because darkness was always a symbol of judgment. And God allowed in the middle of the day uh, a miracle to take place where there was no sunlight. Darkness came upon the land. And God did this because he wanted to show his wrath. Now, here's how I know this. It, go back in the Old Testament. Remember the plagues that are given to the Egyptians? What was the ninth plague? It was darkness. 
God shows his judgment by darkness. Fast forward to a future event. There's going to be a time in the tribulation time before Jesus comes back to the earth. And one of the plagues that will happen, it's a bold judgment, will be darkness. And people will be wailing and they'll be crying out in that darkness. The ultimate darkness of judgment we are told in the scripture is for the person that would reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, their Messiah. And it says in the scriptures that they will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the question is, why is God so angry? Why is God angry? My friends, the reason God is angry is because of sin, because of the sinfulness of man. We learn in Romans the heart of God in regards to what makes him angry. Romans 1 says this, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from the heavens against all the godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What makes God angry? What makes God angry is sin. My friends, God is a holy God, and God cannot tolerate sin within his presence, and sin is appalling to him. And even when we as individuals, when we embrace it, and we rationalize it, and we do it as we want, we do it secretly, God says, that appalls me. That is horrible to God. He hates our sin, our rebellion. And I say our because we're all in that boat. We or some are, or we will, we were in that boat. And I'll explain that in a minute. So what does sin do? What are the consequences? Romans says this. This is what God says. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself, against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. In other words, we will get what is coming to us if we, are still, if we still have our sin upon ourselves. God's wrath will come upon us. Friends, this is what each and every one of us deserve. And this is what he was communicating by the darkness in the land that he was angry at sin. Now, fortunate for you and I, Jesus was there to satisfy the wrath of God, which takes us to the second observation. Not only was wrath known, but Jesus was there to take the sins of the world upon himself. Take a look at verse 34. What does he cry out? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this phrase encompasses both relationship, my God, my God, this is his father, but it also shows us the abandonment that is taking place at this time. You see, this was the very first time in history and ever would be ever again in history. This is the only time in history that the father and the son would be separated from one another. Well, why were they separated? Well, Habakkuk tells us this about God. Listen to what it says about God. It says, your eyes, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
You cannot tolerate wrong. That's our God. And if God were to look upon Jesus on the cross, he would have seen sin. And thus, he had to separate himself from Christ. You say, well, isn't that a little strong, Steve, to say Jesus was sin? No, 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 that's not what I said. That's actually what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said this, God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin to what? Be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what Jesus was doing there on the cross was he was satisfying the judicial responsibility that God had to bring punishment upon sin. He had to do it. A holy God had to do it. Now, I think on some level we understand that, especially if you're parents. The wages of sin has to bring punishment. Sin can't go unpunished. I know that's true when our kids were small. When they did wrong, there was punishment. There was the wrath of dad. There was a spanking on the butt so that they could understand what they were doing was wrong because my children often rebelled and said, no, daddy, I'm not going to do that. And you knew you were going to create a monster if there was no little wrath that comes out. Well, God, in a sense, is bringing his wrath of all humanity on a very huge scale of all time on Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. Jesus was resting that wrath, or God was resting that wrath on his son. Jesus experienced an unfathomable horror that day. An unfathomable horror being separated from God and taking on the sins of the world. My friends, it wasn't the scourging. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't even the cross that caused deep pain for Christ. It was our sin, the sin of all humanity that he was making payment for. So why? Why would he do such a thing? Romans says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by the blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? Do you see the solution to God's wrath? It's Jesus. And this brings every individual to a pivotal decision as to how they will satisfy the wrath that is upon them. We have one of two choices. We can either pay for it ourselves, which means that we live as we want to live. We do as we want to do. We live our life in disregard to God. And when we end this life, God has to send us to a place where we have to eternally make payment for our sins in a place called hell. Or option two, which I personally prefer, we can allow Jesus to take all of my sins and by me submitting my life to him, he takes all of my sin, he takes it off of me, he places it on Christ, and the Romans says that he puts upon me the clothing of righteousness. And so now he sees me as just. He sees me as righteous. He sees me as holy. 
That's the decision. That's why it's such a mind-boggling thing for me to have individuals say, no, I don't want Jesus. I don't want a relationship with him. Are you kidding me? This is what God has gone to great extent to happen for you. Now notice that this gift of salvation was completed when Jesus breathed his last. It says in the passage in verse 38 that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, we're told in John 19 what he actually uttered. And what he uttered was this. He said, it is finished. It's complete. The cost of redemption has been made. The price has been paid. Now, here's one other profound thing that I want you to see here. Remember when I was pointing out Psalm 22 that had been given, predicted the thousand year previous? Please understand that there was something even more profound about that passage. I'm going to turn to it. Just listen. In Psalm 22, verse 1, listen to how that psalm starts. It starts out by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Notice how verse 31 ends in that psalm. He has done it. Another way of saying it, it is finished. The very plan that had been predicted a thousand years previous, Jesus was quoting that psalm, I believe, on the cross as he fulfilled every last detail of that psalm. And what an underscore of uh, an explanation mark in terms of the gift of salvation that he has given us. He has fulfilled all this planning right there. You know, when a gift has been planned for, it's special. If I was to give you a special gift, and we'll call it a white elephant gift, if you knew it was a white elephant gift, you knew that I just ran down to my basement and rummaged through all the, the, the junky stuff that I have, and I threw something in the bag, and I brought it up and said, here you go, isn't that special? And you open it up like, oh, gosh, I'll keep this for next Christmas and give it to somebody else. But if I came to you and said, listen, I have something planned for you. I have planned out a two-week European vacation for you. I have purchased plane tickets for you. I have booked your hotel reservations. I have everything planned out. In fact, I even have a Viking cruise uh, yeah, thing going on for you. It's all been paid for. There's a meal plan. I got it all right here ready to give you. Now, please don't get any ideas. That's not happening. But if that did happen, you would say, wow, that's pretty special that he would go to that extent to plan. Here's the point. The greater the, the greater the price, the greater the planning, the greater the gift. And my friends, there's no greater price and there's no greater planning than what Jesus did, what God did for us on that cross. Here's the final observation that we make from this passage. It's in verse 38. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now take a look at what's happening here. What I believe is happening is that God symbolically is opening a way for sinful man to have a relationship with God. 
You say, Steve, how do you get that from a curtain? You see, the curtain was not no ordinary curtain. This was the barricade in the Holy of Holies within the temple. Historically, the Jews knew that only one person one time a year on the Day of Atonement could go into this place called the Holy of Holies. In fact, any priest, that high priest that went in that year, they had bells on his, on his robe and they had a rope on his foot in case he was not holy enough that they could drag his dead body out because they couldn't go in to get him. And so a one time a year he would go and make a blood sacrifice for himself as far as, and for the people. And when God tore the curtain, the verb tense here is implying that it was a supernatural divine thing that took place. And when we think of curtain, we think of maybe a sheer type of thing. Please understand if you read Exodus 26, you realize this was more like a carpet. It was more like a heavy duty rug and God ripped it open as an explanation point to say, I have now made a way through the blood of the lamb, the one-time sacrifice, my son, and now you have an open access to me. And that's why the writers of Hebrews says this, let us then approach the throne of grace. Let us approach the holy of holies with confidence so that we may receive the mercy and find grace in the time of our need. The cross changed everything. It was the hinge point in all of history. So what about for us? What about for us? How has it been the hinge point for us? I want you to know there's always been historically different reactions to the cross. I want us to look just very briefly at the reactions. I'm going to go back and just verbally remind you of some of the reactions that we read about earlier. Here's the first reaction. There's the busy soldiers. The busy soldiers, they were too busy to see that they were actually, the one they were mocking was actually the Messiah. They were so blinded by their daily duties and they were so busy that they missed it. That's kind of like people today. There are some people that are just so busy don't have time for church. Don't have time for God. Yeah, maybe someday I'll get a little religion in my life, they may say. But they're busy right now. How do we deal with the gift of God? Number two, there was the self-satisfied religious people. These people were smug religious people who certainly didn't think that they needed redemption. The law was being fulfilled before their very eyes and they were the keepers of the law and they missed it entirely. They were blinded by their own pride and by their own righteous ambition. They missed God, what God was doing, by their own self-satisfying good deeds. And my friends, there are people in churches across the nation today that are thinking, man, I'm okay with God. I'm going to church. I've given a little bit of money. That's what it's all about, isn't it? I'm a pretty good person. And they're missing the gift of God. You could never ever earn what he did on the cross for you. You can never pay enough. How about Pilate? Some people are like Pilate, the coward. Pilate allowed Jesus to be crucified to save his own behind. If, if he didn't keep the peace in Jerusalem, he would be replaced. He was blinded by his own desire for personal advancement. I wonder how many people out there ambition 
to get ahead in life are missing it. And then there's the bystanders. There's just the passerbys who were there for the show. They didn't come to pay their respect to a dying man on a cross. No, they were blind to their own desires for a thrill, for an experience, something to talk about. And I wonder how many people are so busy looking for the thrill in life, looking for some kind of fulfillment, that they're missing the ultimate fulfillment that God wants to bring. And then there was one. One of the most unlikely people in the entire cast of people that were there that day, the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion, he truly had a God encounter. Even though he was, there, was, there were other centurions that viewed the mocking and the scourging, this man saw this in a different light. Maybe it was the love that he saw as Jesus extended grace to one of the, the mocking criminals on the cross that changed his heart. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe it was the way that he quoted Psalm 22. Maybe it was just generally the hatred that people had and the love that was flowing from his very veins. I don't know what all changed him, but what we do know is that he said, this man was the son of God. My friends, here's what I know of all these different responses. The thing that blinds is our ambition, is our pride, is our desire, is what we want to do in life, what we think we have a right in in this life. And it's only when we strip that away and see ourselves as sinful people in light of a holy God and what he has done will we come to a place of saying, Surely, surely this is the Son of God. And when that happens, sometimes it happens to the most unlikely person that you maybe have been praying for and you think they'll never come around. But because they see something in you, they see the example of Christ, they come to that place and they are radically changed. My friends, that's what we want what we want. That's what the cross is about. We want to see that happen. I believe God wants the most unlikely people to get saved. There's a lady that I read about this week. Her name's Rosera. Rosetta, Rosera Butterfield. Rosera Butterfield, in her own words, said this. She described herself as a leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. That's how she described herself. Now, as a professor, Rosera often had Christians in her class, and she saw those Christians as stupid, pointless, and menacing. On the other hand, she saw herself as one who truly cared about morality and justice and compassion. Rosera was influenced by such thinkers as Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And thus, she found herself on the opposite extreme of, at that time, the religious right. She used to use her influence as a professor to post all kinds of articles. She painted herself as happy and meaningful and fulfilled. She and her partner were AIDS activists. She shared, an in, uh, shared interest in uh, children's literacy, in children's health, in golden retriever rescue, and being a part of the Unitarian Universal Church. 
Now, in order to combat the religious right, Rosera felt that she needed to read the one book that got so many people off track. So she started reading the Bible. Now, at first, when she would read the Bible, she would use it as ammunition and write more articles to get the religious right all fired up. And she got all kinds of hate mail, which just went on to feed her perception about Christians. But then one day, she started dialoguing with a Presbyterian pastor named Ken Smith. Ken did not attack her, but rather challenged Rosera. He would say questions like, how did you arrive at your interpretation? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? And this began a two-year evolution of a friendship between Ken and his wife, Floyd. Ken and Floyd did not invite her to church, but rather they entered into her world in a loving yet engaging way. As Rosera started to put her guard down, For the very first time, she read the Bible in an authentic way. As time went on, she started reading with a gluttonous desire of the Word of God. And though some from the LGBT group warned her not to read the Bible, that it would just corrupt her, she kept on reading, and eventually she found herself brave enough to attend Pastor Ken's church. She thought she would be condemned with her butch haircut and her ways, But what she found was she was loved by the church, she was taught the word, and she was given room to struggle. And this is what happened. She said this, and I quote her. Then one day I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. I was a broken mess. I weakly, without strength, believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family like we have here. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. Rosera was a changed person. My friends, what we learn from this passage What we learn from this hinge point event is that God wants every single person. He wants every single person to experience the blood of Christ. Have you entered that relationship with him? Are you paying for your sins or have you allowed God to pay for your sins? Here's another thing I want us to think about if you have given your life to Christ. My friends, we have the hinge point message. It is this message that we are to take. We are to be agents of love to a world, just like Pastor Ken and his wife was to Rosera. Folks, this is what Mission View is about. Let's not forget what we're about. We want to have an intimate relationship with God. We want to have community with each other. But we are here to have an influence and take the most incredible message that has been given to us to a lost world that needs hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, for the person that would say, Yeah, I don't know if I really know you. 
I pray for that person that they would open their hearts to say, God, I know that I'm bearing this wrath that I deserve, but I don't want that. I want you to take it. I want you to forgive me. I want option two. I want, I want you to take all the things I've done wrong and I want to submit them to you. And I ask that you would do a work in my heart and my life. Lord, help me. Help me to see. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would enter in to my life. Change me from the inside out. Lord, I also pray for the believer that's struggling. For the believer that's struggling just to live for you. I pray that you would help them to mount up with wings like eagles. Help them to have strength. Help them to know that what they have, the opportunity that they have, is to live out this incredible faith of ours. Lord, help us to rejoice in that. In Christ's name.